This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Before going through the outline, I want to start with a quotation that is that provides something of the questio that I want to pursue with you this afternoon. When Aquinas was an interesting feature of Aquinas's method is that when he was writing the Summa, he was also undertaking other studies. And it's difficult for scholars to know what exactly was the purpose of these other writings. Were they uh, pre uh, preparatory for what he was going to write in the Summa? Or were they uh, an occasion for him to say more fully things that he was only able to sketch in the Summa? And it, perhaps it's a little bit of both. So. It, for example, the commentary on the Gospel of John, the commentaries on the Pauline letters, the commentary on the Psalms are all going on while Aquinas is writing the Summa, especially uh, as he's getting to the third part. But why, while he was writing the Secundipars, he also undertook the disputed questions on the cardinal virtues. And it's that uh, in the idea that perhaps he was able to expatiate, say a little bit more, about something that he only says briefly in the Summa, that I want to start with this quotation and then pursue some of the implications of this quotation. So it's 1A among the text, right after the outline. Those who are baptized receive prudence along with charity and all the other virtues too, but it is not for the necessity of it is not of the necessity of prudence that a man deliberate well in everything. For example, in commerce and military matters and the like, but only in things necessary for salvation, which are not lacking to those in grace, however simple they be. So what does he mean by those things that are necessary for salvation, and what are the things that are not necessary for salvation for which he, uh, one does not receive uh, infused prudence? That's something I want to just briefly consider with you in the brief time that we have together. So the outline. I want to do this with a few things that are preparatory for the part that I want to present. One is taking seriously the mystery of grace and the analogies from nature that we use to try to understand something of this mystery, both with regard to the character of faith, hope, and charity, but also these three realities relationship to the virtues. Just briefly look at that. Look at how Augustine tried to articulate this twin mystery, the mystery of these three realities and their relationship to what uh, the uh, Latin culture traditionally described as virtues. Then to say, see how Aquinas uh, presents the infused virtues, specifically the infused cardinal virtues, uh, and uh, the way he pursues them in relation to the two ends of life, uh, which we can call the natural end and the heavenly or graced end. That's where give us the occasion to look a little bit more fully on this idea of the necessities of salvation, uh, specifically uh, with regard to uh, prudence and with temperance, because those are examples that Aquinas himself uses, and then conclude with looking, suggesting some of the implications of this. So first, uh, the mystery of, uh, of grace and 
the infused virtues. It might be helpful, therefore, just to begin with something that the Catechism says, drawing upon the canons of the Council of Trent. Since it belongs to the supernatural order, grace escapes our experience and cannot be known except by faith. Uh, now, the context that, that they develop in uh, 2005 is the context as to whether you can know you, whether you are in the state of grace. But that's not so much the question here. This existential question is, am I in the state of grace? But the more uh, cognitive question of, well, what is it? If someone is in the state of grace, what does that look like? In both uh, uh, situations, we're confronted with a mystery. And Aquinas helpfully, some, I put together some qu quotations here in terms of Aquinas's uh, method with regard to this mystery. As Dionysius says, the things of God cannot be manifested to man except by means of sensible similitudes. The context being uh, the ways in which we speak of God and the things of God. Uh, incorporeal things of which, this is question, this is a quotation C, 2C, incorporeal things of which there are no phantasms, that is, uh, sensate images, uh, are known to us by comparison with sensible bodies of which there are phantasms. So we know the spiritual by analogy with the physical. And then the mystery of a habitus. Habits like the powers are known by their acts. Anyone knows he has a habit from the fact that he can produce the act proper to that habit. Or, if you want to prescind from whether or not he himself has it, or he may inquire into the nature and idea of the habit by considering the act of that habit. So Aquinas is confronted by the mystery of, as all theologians are, the mystery of faith, hope, and charity. And it's important for us to remember that nowhere in Scripture are they described as virtues, as aretai. That word is never applied either in the Greek version of the Old Testament or in the New Testament to faith, hope, and charity. Uh, I've given, uh, the scholars think the first reference to the three together is probably 1 Corinthians 13.13. 13. Uh, there, therefore, there are three things that last, faith, hope, and charity, and the greatest of these are charity. Uh, but I've given you Romans, because Romans 5, 1 through 5, uh, places these three realities in the context of the Trinity, God the Father, Christ, and the Spirit, uh, and also mentions grace and glory. So the movement, the life of grace, movement towards glory through a life of faith, hope, and charity that becomes possible because of what? God has poured into our hearts uh, through the Holy Spirit uh, his love. So this idea that faith, hope, and charity are gifts from God that we receive. Well, how is it that we can call them virtues? They start to be called virtues fairly quickly. Already the apostolic fathers uh, start to apply uh, Clement. First Clement, for example, describes faith as the greatest virtue and as the uh, mother of the virtues. So you already have uh, apostolic fathers applying the notion uh, that faith, hope, and charity are themselves virtues. Uh, but is this uh, a legitimate move? Aquinas, very interestingly, is going to do this. Uh, if we go down to the next 
quotation here. I'm giving you first the, the scriptural text that he draws upon. This would be 2E. And it's uh, a literal translation of the Vulgate of Ben Sirach, Ecclesiasticus. You who fear the Lord, believe him, and your reward shall not be made void. You who fear the Lord, hope in him, and mercy shall come to you for your delight. You who fear the Lord, love him, and your hearts shall be enlightened. So Aquinas sees this because of the verbal form as these are three commandments. Uh, if you have phobos, if you have fear of the Lord, you should believe, hope, and love. You are commanded to believe, hope, and love. And in the legal tradition, what, what is the goal of law? The law is to mandate acts of virtue. And that allows him to therefore apply the word virtue to faith, hope, and charity. I start with all this background to remind us that we are confronted with a mystery. The scriptures use many different analogies from life to describe the mystery of grace. The other quotation I've given you is from 2 Peter, where we are using the language, the Aristotelian language of friendship, we are described as becoming koinonoi, having communion with the divine nature. And one of the few places in the New Testament where the relationship between faith, hope, and charity and the virtues is presented, 2 Peter 1, 4 through 7, presents the virtues in this bookend. You've got faith, then you've got a list of virtues that actually uses the word virtue, and it's, at the end of that is charity. So it seems as if uh, this participation in the divine nature begins in faith, it in implies living a series of excellences that are animated by love. This is all the new authors trying to describe the mystery of grace, the effect of God's love on human nature is to empower us to live the realities of faith, loving confidence in God about who God is and what he does for us, to hope in him that we have uh, a vocation to glory and to love him. All in the context of a life of virtue. If I had more time, we could go into unpacking the Stoic virtues that are uh, packed into Second uh, Peter there. The point is, the theological challenge for us is to use the experience of the philosophical tradition to analogously apply it to faith, hope, and charity, and then to the life of virtue in relation to faith, hope, and charity. And so this is quotation F, the precepts of the law are about acts of virtue. Now the divine law contains precepts about acts of faith, hope, and charity. For it is written, we've given, I've given you the quotation, therefore faith, hope, and charity are virtues directing us to God. Therefore, since they direct us to God, they're virtues and they are theological virtues. And he will go on uh, to describe the level in our psychology at which faith, hope, and charity exist at the deepest level uh, of our psychology, analogous to the principles uh, the first principles of knowledge, the light of, of the intellect, the light of faith plays an elevating role there. And then the inclinations of the will, 
made uh, elevated in the gift uh, gifts of hope and charity. Now, how then to relate this to the mystery of uh, the what we want to call the infused cardinal virtues? It begins with Augustine's reflection. Augustine is confronted with an analogous problem, how to understand faith, hope, and charity in relation to the heritage of pagan virtue. Um, and I've given you uh, three quotations uh, that are going to influence Aquinas. 3a, the highest good can come to men only through Christ. So it is through, in and through Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead that we have life. The highest good can come to men only through Christ, in him crucified, by whose death, death itself is conquered, and by whose wounds our nature is healed. Therefore, the just man lives by faith in Christ. For from this faith he lives prudently, courageously, temperately, and justly. And thus, through all these true virtues, he lives rightly and wisely, because he lives faithfully. So by living faith, hope, and charity, which are gifts of grace uh, that incorporate us into the life of Christ, we also live the traditional uh, virtues of uh, the, that Ambrose will describe as the cardinal virtues. He goes on. We've, this was, now that we're in his commentary on the Psalms, Christ, who is the virtue of God and the wisdom of God, a little footnote here, Aquinas' job and Augustine's job is made easier because of the way in which Jerome translates a multitude of different terms from Hebrew and Greek using one word, virtus. I, I say to my students, you millennials, if you want you who love tattoos, if you're going to get a tattoo, from my perspective, participation and analogy. You can do it, you can do it in Greek. That would look nice. You can do it in Hebrew, Latin, but if you're going to become theologians, participation and analogy. And what Jerome does is he uses the word virtus in a, to cover a myriad of meanings, analogous meanings that all participate in uh, the, the same foundation, which is the ability to act comes from God. And so uh, Christ, who is the virtue of God, the Greek there is not arete, right? It's, it's uh, uh, dunamis. But with uh, Jerome, it becomes virtus, which helps Aquinas out. Christ, who is the virtue of God and the wisdom of God, gives different virtues uh, in, the in this place. And who, to provide all the virtues that are necessary and useful in this valley of tears, shall give one virtue, himself. For in scripture and in many writers, four virtues are described, useful for life, prudence by which we discern between good and evil, justice by which we give each person his due, owing no man anything, by, but loving all men, temperance by which we restrain lusts, courage by which we bear all troubles. These virtues are now by the grace of God given to us in this valley of tears. So Augustine presenting the traditional four cardinal virtues within the life of faith, hope, and charity within the life of Christ. Uh, the text that will have a lot of influence on subsequent writers, on medieval writers, is from uh, on, on the uh, 
the, the De Moribus Ecclesiae, and it describes, redescribes all the cardinal virtues as forms of love. I've given you the text. I don't have time to read it all through, but he basically transforms, and I can give you the bottom part here. So this is the last of the three, but the bottom last sentence. So we may express the definition thus, that temperance is loving, is love keeping itself entire and incorrupt for God. Fortitude is love bearing everything readily for the sake of God. Justice is love serving God only and therefore ruling well all else as subject to man. Prudence is love making a right distinction between what it what helps it toward God and what might hinder it. So all four virtues redescribed as excellences that are animated by a well-ordered love. And he will go on to say that the general virtue, the general definition of virtue is well-ordered love. That is going to pose some difficulty for Aquinas. And I've given you two quotations, A and B, four A and B, as to how he attempts to show uh, both respecting Augustine, that there is no virtue without charity in the fullest sense, but uh, re showing that it's, it's more causative and not the actual habitus. The saying of Augustine is to be understood of virtue simply so-called to distinguish it from uh, in, uh, intellectual virtues that don't perfect us for action. So it's to be understood of virtue simply so-called, not that every virtue is love simply, but, it, but that it depends in some way on love, insofar as it depends on the will whose first movement consists in love. So the four cardinal virtues animated by charity. And he will go on to say this in uh, another place. The will moves all the faculties to their acts. Now the first act of the appetitive faculty is love. Accordingly, prudence is said to be love, not indeed essentially, but insofar as love moves to the act of prudence. Wherefore, Augustine goes on to say that prudence is love discerning aright, that which helps from that which hinders us in tending to God. Now, love is said to discern because it moves reason to discern. Now, at this point, it becomes more intelligible as to why Scotus, and those who want to say that the moral virtues are all virtues of the will. You could imagine a world following a certain interpretation of, the, of these Augustinian texts that wants to say we have acquired virtues, but they are animated by charity, and that, that's sufficient. Now, we could maybe, from the text, say, when looking at what Aquinas does say, that on many things, that is Aquinas' account, but not on everything. So now we go on to uh, what Aquinas is going to say uh, with regard to the other types of virtue. I've got uh, two big blocks here just because I wanted to have you have the texts. These are the classic uh, places where in the Prima Secundae, uh, he's asked, he asks... Uh, different questions. The first is, are there virtues in us by nature? Are there virtues in us by habituation? Are there infused virtues? Uh, and then uh, what's the relationship between infused cardinal virtues and uh, acquired cardinal virtues? So I've given you uh, the question here, the number two one, uh, 
whether any virtue is caused in us by habituation. And the objections, I've given you the principal one, the first one, because it, it uh, suggests itself from what we've already seen from Augustine. So the first objection. It would seem that virtues cannot be caused in us by habituation because a gloss of Augustine commenting on Romans, all that is not faith is sin, says the whole life of an unbeliever is a sin and there is no good without the sovereign good. Where knowledge of the truth is lacking, virtue is a mockery even in the best behaved people. Now faith cannot be acquired by means of works, but is caused in us by God. According to Ephesians 2.8, by grace you are saved through faith. Therefore, no acquired virtue can be in us by habituation. That sounds like a very strong argument. On the contrary, and this is a argu very interesting argument, again, from Dionysius, participation, analogy, participation, analogy. And what does Dionysius say? That good is more efficacious than evil but vicious habits are caused by evil acts. Much more, therefore, can virtuous habits be caused by good acts. So that's just the said contra. But behind that said contra is the whole vision of God as creator, who is intimately present in his creation. You know, one of the great challenges for Aquinas is the dogma coming from John's gospel of the inhabit inhabitation uh, that God dwells in us in the Trinity. The Trinity dwells in those who have sanctifying grace. But Aquinas has such a strong notion of, of what it means for the creator to be present to his creation, which he also gets from Augustine, that he doesn't know, it's not easy to say, well, how can he be there even more? And it has to be through the mystery of these spiritual powers of intellect and will. I say all this as a little digression to say that first gift which is nature, is already the deep intimacy between the agency of God and his creatures at work. And what God gives in nature, he doesn't entirely take away. Grace heals it and elevates it. But there is the givenness that nature can attain with grace. So what's, what's the, uh, I answer that. Man's virtue perfects him in relation to good. Now, since the notion of good consists in mode, species, and order, as Augustine states, or in number, weight, and measure, as expressed in wisdom, man's good must needs be appraised with respect to some rule. Now, we've already seen that the fact that the theological virtues are commanded and the role of law is to command uh, virtue we now have the idea that we have, wherever there is a, a measuring, a regula, there is a corresponding disposition. The Aquinas will use analogies from the arts to point this out, uh, to make a house, uh, the habitus of the carpenter, the habitus of a jazz pianist, uh, is a habitus according to a regula. And so in the Christian, in the, in the life, uh, there are various regula, wherever there is a good. And so uh, man's good must be, must be appraised with respect to some rule. Now this rule is twofold as stated above, namely human reason and divine law. And since divine law is the higher rule, it extends to more things so that whatever is ruled by human reason is ruled by the divine law too. But the converse does not hold. 
It follows that human nature, human virtue, directed to the good which is defined according to the rule of human reason, can be caused by human acts, inasmuch as such acts proceed from reason, by whose power and rule the aforesaid good is established. On the other hand, virtue which directs man to good as defined by divine law and not by human reason cannot be caused by human acts, the principle of which is reason, but is produced in us by the divine operation alone. Hence, Augustine, in giving the definition of the latter virtue, inserts the words which God works in us without us. So Aquinas, again, he's used the the first person plural throughout this, this text. There are acquired excellences that we acquire according to the rule of reason. Uh, and then uh, I jump down the last quotation here, whether any moral virtues are in us uh, by infusion. And I've given all three objections. I don't want to go through them all, but jump to the said contra, he goes to wisdom. Now, wisdom, Book of Wisdom is fascinating because if you think about the Jews' encounter with Greek culture, the books of the Old Testament that were written in Greek, Second Maccabees, for example, and the Book of Wisdom, confront uh, the Greek heritage of moral excellence, and they transform it. So one of the things that happens in the Book of Wisdom, which is a veritable uh, preparation for the events of the life of Christ, uh, you have uh, wisdom personified teaching the, uh, the traditional virtues. So Frosune, Phronesis, Dikaosune, uh, and Andrea, the four cardinal virtues of the Greeks. Wisdom 8.7. Wisdom teaches temperance and prudence and justice and fortitude. And then he answers, and he gives the argument from proportion. The theological virtues dispose us to God, have God as their object, but in order to make concrete acts that are ordered to God, ad finem, uh, God as end, we need dispositions that help us judge aright with regard to those things and incline us to act aright. For those things necessary for salvation, that's the kicker. Uh, and what does that mean? Uh, so you can read at your leisure the full text of uh, the quotation D there. Uh, I'm going to jump to his treatise on law just to give you other places to look at these issues. Virtue is twofold, as explained above, namely acquired and infused. Now the fact of being accustomed to an action contributes to both. The issue is here, does law uh, promote virtue? Uh, but in different ways, for it causes, law causes the acquired virtue uh, while it disposes to infused virtue uh, and preserves and fosters it when it already exists. And since law is given for the purpose of directing human acts, as far as human acts conduce, conduce to virtue, so far does law make men good. So he's looking at the way in which law can promote uh, virtue, and he recognizes, well, there's two different types of virtue, and there's the, the law can be promoting you to acquire uh, cardinal virtues for the goods towards which they are directed, and it can uh, dispose you to merit increase in 
the infused virtues. Uh, there's another way in which uh, we find that in these other quotations that are in the, the treatise on law. Uh, and I, this one I want to point out to uh, a feature of Aquinas. Aquinas knows the city of God very, very well, but he's not entirely comfortable with the way of talking about the two cities. And he doesn't really, on his own, use the distinction uh, because Everyone who's read the City of God, the poetry is magnificent, but what's the relationship between this particular city that I'm born in, let's say I'm born in Naples, and the earthly city in Augustine? It doesn't seem, if you read the text carefully, that you can make an identification between Naples and the earthly city, which is the result of disordered love of self to the rejection of God. So there's something going on here. And Aquinas, to avoid difficulty, kind of retires the distinction. But he does use the distinction, and this is why F is so important. The goodness of any part is considered in comparison with the whole. Hence, Augustine says that unseemly is the part that harmonizes not with the whole. Since then, every man is a part of the city, uh, pars civitatis. It is impossible that a man be good unless he be well proportionate to the common good, nor can the whole be well consistent unless its parts be proportionate to it. So the city can't be good, nor the individual good, unless the part is harmonized well interiorly and in relation to others. Consequently, the common good of the city cannot flourish unless the citizens be virtuous, at least those whose business it is to govern. Uh, and then uh, he will look at the ways in which uh, the two laws interact. The end of human law is different from the end of divine law. This is now quotation G. For the end of human law is the temporal tranquility of the city, which end law affects by directing external actions as regards to those evils which might disturb the peaceful condition of the city. On the other hand, the end of the divine law is to bring man to that end which is everlasting happiness, which end is hindered by any sin, not only of external, but also of internal action. Consequently, that which suffices for the perfection of human law the prohibition and punishment of sin does not suffice for the perfection of divine law, but is requisite. But it is requisite that it should make man altogether fit to partake of everlasting happiness. So we have two ends. As parts of the earthly city, we need to develop virtues that well order us to the good of that city. But we are citizens of heaven by the gift of grace we have virtues that dispose us to our eternal life. Now, um, this brings me to uh, the threshold of what I really want to leave with you, which is mainly uh, some, uh, some text and then a question for you to ponder. Uh, Aquinas will make it clear that there are these two realities, but it's not so clear exactly how they interrelate. The two places where he addresses this, one has to do with prudence, the other has to do with temperance. 
63, uh, Prima Secundae 63.4 talks about the way in which the two temperances are related, infused temperance and acquired temperance. Uh, and I'm going to jump down a little bit. It is evident that the mean that is appointed in each like concupiscences according to the rule of reason is seen under a different aspect from the mean which is fixed according to divine rule. For instance, in the consumption of food, the mean fixed by human reason is that food should not harm the health of the body, nor hinder the use of reason, whereas according to the divine rule, it behooves man to chastise his body and bring it into subjection by abstinence in food, drink, and the like. It is therefore evident that infused and acquired temperance differ in species, and the same applies to other virtues. So, what is that saying? Uh, it's saying, let, let's look for some cases. Let's look at uh, the curedars. Curedars who would eat standing up, and he would eat because he was in mortal combat with, his, with the devil who would come and afflict him and throw him around the room. And so, he's not concerned about his physical health so much. He's concerned that he not give an inch to the temptations of his foe. That in God's providence, he's let the, uh, the God has let the, the, the devil uh, have his way in terms of temptations. Uh, and so he's eating in this way. It seems to be an infused virtue from the argument of Aquinas that is inclining him, disposing him, along with a prudential judgment that is also uh, infused to eat in this way for a spiritual good, the goal of heaven, which he would not do, which prudence, acquired prudence, would not do normally. Acquired prudence is trying to keep the body healthy. It's not at all clear that this is a healthy activity for the body. All right, so it's not the same as, you know, periodic dieting. That's not what he's doing. This is not, the curator is not the patron of dieting. He is in combat. All right. There's something similar with regard to prudence. Uh, if we look at quotation I, other specific differences among habits is taken from the things to which they are directed. Thus, the philosopher says that citizens have diverse virtues according as they are directed to diverse forms of government. Uh, in the same way, too, those infused moral virtues whereby men live well in respect to their being fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God differ from the acquired virtues whereby uh, man behaves well in respect to human affairs, ad res humanas. So that's the, that, there's the tension, really. The tension goes back to Augustine. The tension between we are wayfarers, we are citizens, we are parts of the earthly city, naturally. And that never leaves us while life endures. But we begin to live more and more as citizens of heaven. So you have someone like uh, St. Dominic. Did Dominic have a cell? Well, there's a, there's a room in Santa Sabina we call St. Dominic's cell, but St. Dominic was known for like sleeping anywhere. And he was not living in a way that was conducive for a long life, but he was living for heaven and he was fulfilling his vocation. So there's a, there's a tension between what acquired virtue would dispose you to do and what uh, the infused virtue would dispose you to do. And we, that's something we can look at and a question that you can uh, take away to, to ponder. Um, now, I've given here in this 
moving to the necessities of salvation, he says things in the Summa that are interesting with regard to the gifts. Diligence is twofold. This is 5a. One is merely sufficient with regard to things necessary for salvation, and such diligence is given to all who have grace, whom, and he loves this quotation from 1 John, his anointing teaches all things, that is, all things necessary for salvation. There is also another diligence, which is more than sufficient, whereby a man is able to make provision both for himself and for others, not only in matters necessary for salvation, but also in all matters relating to human life, and such diligence as this is not in all who have grace. Now, those of us who are uh, alumni from the University of Notre Dame will remember that there is a real tension between Father Soren and Father Basil Moreau. Basil Moreau, I think objectively, was not good with money, and he was not good at judging people's character with regard to money. Soren, who was in no way a saint, was cagier with regard to both. What's very interesting is you could objectively say Basil had the infused virtues necessary to live a saintly life, to never act contrary to grace, never act contrary to charity but he made disastrous decisions so that they lost all their original buildings. They had to sell them off. Uh, that would seem to me to be an illustration of what Aquinas is talking about. That you have the infused virtues of uh, faith, uh, of um, prudence, infused prudence, infused justice, infused courage, and infused temperance for those things that are necessary for salvation, but not necessarily for, as he says earlier, for things in commerce, that would be a good example with uh, regard to Basil Moreau, or with regard to warfare. And the other example, which I've given in, in other uh, situations, is the uh, Louis IX. And uh, whether Louis IX should have gone on crusade, his biographer, who was a close friend, who knew him well, who was his seneschal, which is a very complicated job to have. It's more than just being an MC. You have to know how everyone in the Norm Norman aristocracy or in the Capetian aristocracy, how they were all related and where they should all sit relative to each other, how they should pass and review. All of that, Jean-Jeanville, the seneschal, said that Louis IX should have stayed home listened to the good judgment of his queen and taken care of France and not got on the crusade. I think Jeanville has been vindicated by history that Louis is the saint, but Louis lacked a certain type of prudence with regard to warfare, which Aquinas doesn't think is given to all, only what's necessary for salvation. Uh, and Aquinas will in certain places talk about how that's good for our humility, right? It's not like the savior in Dune we, we, we're not Marvel action figures. Grace gives us what we need for salvation, but humbles us uh, in many other ways. All right, now, uh, my time is running out. I think uh, I want to look at, I've looked at the question of the difference between the two types, fasting and uh, with regard to temperance and um, prudence of the simple. I now just give you some of the quotations, just giving you the references. Okay, well, if 
you've given, if you're given these infused cardinal virtues for what's necessary for salvation, what does Aquinas think is necessary for salvation? Well, we have to keep our baptismal promises. We have to maintain our faith in Christ and our renunciation of Satan and of evil. That's clear. That's necessary for salvation. And we're given that ability. We have to keep the precepts of the natural law. That's given in the grace of conversion. Uh, and also, which by implication, we have to live the Ten Commandments as a minimum. And that is given to us. Trent defines that. Um, and then the turning of one's affections away from whatever is contrary to charity. Right? We can choose nothing more than God and love of neighbor in God. So we, do, we, put, we, we choose no lesser good in a mortally sinful way. Uh, we have that grace, and living from that grace is necessary for salvation. Um, interestingly, he also mentions we have to make restitution. It's not enough to feel sorry for our injustices. We have to make restitution. That's necessary uh, for salvation, some form of restitution. Uh, and then sometimes certain acts of mercy are necessary for salvation. Sometimes it is necessary to give evidence. I, that's a typo there, give evidence, it should say. Um, and, but it is not always necessary to embrace martyrdom. Often it, we should run away. Uh, but it is sometimes necessary to embrace martyrdom where uh, denying the faith uh, would be uh, contrary to charity. Uh, nor is it always necessary to turn the other cheek. Self-defense is permitted because it is natural. Uh, uh, moreover, uh, the ability to remove all obstacles from charity. So it's not like we're choosing some lesser good, but we're, we're stumbling on the way. So we're talking about venial sin here. The ability to avoid venial sin, that is to remove all obstacles to charity, that may be lacking. It's lacking in beginners, and it's even lacking in the proficient. And therefore, uh, being able to do those two things are not necessary for salvation. All of this means that there's a now and not yet to our life, and that Aquinas develops the notion of the infused virtues, A, from a faithful reading of what the scriptures say. If you read what the New Testament says, it talks about prudence, it talks about uh, temperance, it talks about uh, justice as all things for which we should pray, and that we receive from Christ. It uses a different word about courage, but the acts, the most principal act, according to Aristotle, of courage is what? To bear evils. And the word that is used is hupomone, and the verb is hupomene. That is all over the New Testament. So the principal act of courage, according to Aristotle, is also given to us in Christ. So Aquinas develops this notion because it is scriptural, but it is only for those things that are necessary for salvation. And one of the things that it points to is our need for each other. And he says that God gives us the counsel, even the dumbest person has the counsel to know that they need to take counsel. They may not be able to make a good judgment, but they, need, they at least are able to say that they need someone else to help them to make a good judgment. Uh, all of this points to our apprenticeship in Christ, and I end with that. I've given you a few of the, uh, I've talking, spoken about at the beginning about how Aquinas was writing other works as he was writing the Summa. The masterpiece of that is his commentary on the Gospel of John, uh, but also his commentary on the Pauline letters. Christ for Aquinas is the man of perfect virtue, 
He has all of the gifts. The gifts are mentioned with relation to him. Uh, and he has all of the Beatitudes. And therefore, as the man of perfect virtue, it is in him that we participate in virtue, and it is in him and the mystery of the cross that we come to uh, eternal life. And so I've given you those, uh, those quotations. I'll just end with the last one. Just as burning wood takes on fire and shares the fire's power, so he who receives the virtues of Christ puts on Christ. Stay in the city till you be clothed with virtue from on high. This applies to those who are inwardly clothed with the virtue of Christ. Put on the new man who, according to God, is created in justice and holiness of truth. Thank you so much, Father. That was really fantastic. You brought up a text that I've wondered about for a long time, and I'd like to ask if you might just expound upon it just a little bit further. And that's in your um, uh, Roman numeral four, text H, where St. Thomas talks about how by infused um, temperance, we chastise the body and bring it under subjection. So I guess what I'm going to ask about is Aquinas on the mortification, mm. because there's a sense in which one could engage in mortification for the purpose of merit. So this is a difficult thing and I'm doing it and I'm doing it for the love of God. Therefore it's meritorious. You mentioned the example of spiritual combat. So I'm being tempted. I'm not going to give an inch to the devil. So I'm going to not do anything that feels nice. Right. But I'm wondering, it's almost like without, there's something missing there maybe, because if you would mortify the flesh to the point of unhealthiness, there's a risk that you would somehow be acting in a way that would be virtuous according to infused temperance, but seem unvirtuous according to acquired temperance. And so I'm wondering if there's a third aspect to mortification. There's something that it does to the faculties of the soul in Aquinas, but you would know better than me. I've not, mm. like I said, I've lived with this text for a long time, but I'm wondering if it has something to do with the woundedness of the powers. Is there some way in which it rectifies them naturally through depriving them? This is a great question because it's a it's a problem, and already in the Pauline texts, Paul thinks that on the natural level, because he uses the analogy again, analogy participation, we draw on the uh, what is more known to us to understand what is less known. We draw on the corporeal to understand the spiritual. So Paul draws upon athletes who do lots of things that seem to afflict the body in order to win the prize. But it, in the Pauline context, they're afflicting the body in order to strengthen the body. And when you look at, when Aquinas is commenting on the Pauline text that causes him great difficulty, one of the few places where he doesn't, uh, we're not sure how much he was able to reread before he died all of the Pauline commentary. So sometimes there's things in there that he had said that he would probably subsequently take out. And one of the things he said is a, it's a marvelous way of speaking, which is a, a term, uh, mira, mira modo uh, loquendi. He doesn't use, he uses it twice in the entire corpus. And one of them is with regard to uh, the, in weakness, uh, my power is made perfect. And Aquinas says, this is a marvelous way of speaking. Fire grows in water. That's the analogy. Uh, that somehow God is saying that power is made perfect in weakness. So there is, 
Already in the Pauline corpus for Aquinas, there is a, the tension between the way in which uh, you afflict the body to strengthen it, and there's a spiritual analogate with regard to the life of grace in relation to the body. So it's a puzzle naturally, and it's a puzzle um, on the level of grace. I don't have great answers to all of that, but it is where the rubber hits the road with regard to the relationship between these two types of acquired, uh, the relationship between acquired and infused virtue. Because it would seem, because otherwise, if we don't, if we try to elide things too easily, we fall into something that was popular in the 1970s and 80s, which is um, healthiness is holiness. So that if, and the, the saints don't seem to confirm that, right? I mean, we, we would like it to be true, and it's not wrong to have a, try to have a healthy body. But having a healthy body is not the same as, you know, we're, we're supposed to put love of neighbor and their spiritual good above our physical welfare. So that whole elision between a healthy body and a holy person has never been in the Catholic tradition. There's a tension there. And there's, I don't have any easy solution. The tension's in Aquinas. To what degree are acquired virtues necessary for salvation? Thanks. Yeah, that's very good. Also, that whatever, I think one thing that's important the more I've studied this, the more I think Aquinas' view of the way in which grace and charity animates the acquired virtues is very similar to what, not the same, but similar to what Olin Lotin thinks is simply the case for everything. Lotin tries to, so Lotin did these incredible historical studies, multiple volumes. Uh, which were the best thing going for a very long time and inspired lots of people to do uh, this, uh, these studies on the primary text. However, on the side, he wrote his own kind of little manuals of moral theology. And there he embraces something much more manualist and, and tries to recreate a form of the Scotus vision without saying that all, all moral virtues are virtues of the will. And so the, it, he seems to think that it's all you need is to have charity animating your acquired virtues. Uh, now, elsewhere, I've argued that there are problems with that in terms of trying to understand how adult conversions work. But something I've never written on, I don't think I ever will, is the example of Mother Teresa with regard to the savings and loan scandal. Uh, Mother Teresa received a lot of money from Charles Keating. And it was a way for Charles Keating to insinuate his way into the Catholic culture of Phoenix and other places. And she wrote a letter on his behalf and sent it to the judge who, if you can believe it, was Lance Edo. I can't imagine. Anyway, so you, I hope you're not old enough to remember who Lance Edo is. But uh, Lance Edo actually wrote a very interesting letter back, which said, uh, you shouldn't be asking me to be lenient on Charles Keating because, you know, the man actually, there, there are no longer any savings and loan because of him. Uh, you should be asking, trying to convince Charles Keating to return his hidden money so that we can help salvage the life savings of a lot of little old ladies and little old, old men who were retired and lost all of their savings. Now, I think in spite of all of my reservations about Lancito for a lot of things, a lot of reasons, I think on that particular point, he was exhibiting better practical, political, practical prudence, 
practical wisdom than she. Now, she is a giant of Christian charity. She has all of the infused virtues necessary to not act against charity, to not violate the Ten Commandments. But in terms of a particular political judgment, she did not, in her 80s, have the... She made the wrong prudential judgment because she didn't have perfect political prudence. She had not spent her life being involved in public life. She spent her life taking dying people off the road. So in order to be a great giant of a saint, you don't have to be a brilliant political strategist, right? And so that's the idea. She didn't have political prudence. She had some political prudence because she had a, she had a growing experience of having to work with the different bishops in India, with the state of India, with other different cor you know, corporations, she, she began to develop that grace or that, that disposition animated by love. But that's a different thing than the acquired judgments that she needs in order not to sin against charity. You see the nuance there? I think that's what Aquinas is arguing for. And I think it corresponds to human experience. What about those areas where, um, in particular, I think about um, martyrdom, where obviously the infused virtues would play a monumental role there, but what role might we add into fortitude, for example, that, that those might interplay together, um, if at all? Right. No, I think that's a very good example because uh, acquired courage is a disposition to die for the common good of the state. And Augustine has a few people that he thinks are quite remarkable with regard to a disposition, a courageous disposition. There is the Roman general who is captured by, the, uh, by Carthage. And he... They, the Carthaginians send him back to Rome to negotiate a peace, but he has to promise that he'll come back. And if the Romans accept the peace offering, uh, he, he will be let free. If the Romans reject the peace offering, he'll be tortured and murdered. But he, they want, they're not going to send him to Rome uh, without him making a promise to come back. He goes to Rome, he argues against peace, he succeeds in getting the Romans to reject peace with Carthage, he goes back to Carthage, he's tortured and killed. Augustine thinks this is a remarkable exhibit of the, the acquired virtue, civic virtue of courage. Now, Augustine also thinks that it's corrupted by, uh, by pride, uh, but someone who has lived his life developing these civic virtues can exhibit remarkable uh, courage. The thing that Aquinas is going to argue, in which the New Testament does argue, Luke's gospel uses the language of uh, the Greek perseverance in the context of, uh, so hupomone in the context of martyrdom, is that God gives the grace to embrace martyrdom unto death, even to people who are, you know, even to someone like Joan of Arc, who's 16 years old and never been trained for battle, she has that infused courage to go bravely 
uh, to her death. Or you can go down the whole list of people, uh, uh, Perpetua, Felicity, that's the oldest account, uh, first person account we have of all of those uh, ways of going off to joyfully uh, uh, to martyrdom. We also have the, the, some of the apostolic fathers talk about this too. So that seems to be an infused courage for people who were not trained for battle. And when, the, when Perpetua went out into the Colosseum, the, the Romans were, inc were incredulous at her courage. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's the way they relate, yeah. Can we say that the infused virtues are properties of the three, three theological virtues, or are they independent, uh, as it were, from the theological or separate entities? And then having said that, can we say if I lose charity and I still have faith and hope, can I have some infused virtues? Well, I mean, the second, the easy answer to your second part of the question, the fact that you still have faith and hope, you have some type of infused dead virtue. But you're asking me as to whether the infused cardinal virtues are remaining after. Aquinas, Aquinas is, explicitly denies that possibility. So without charity, no infused cardinal virtues. Uh, now, uh, the other, the, my way of envisioning it is more in terms of the analogies of light or water or whatever that the they flow from faith. I mean, this is the way Aquinas presents it: the infused cardinal virtues flow from you know the the primary habitus of grace, the, um, the habitual grace elevating the entitative habit of grace. The effect of God's love on human nature primarily is elevating the entity uh, of human nature, giving us a part by adoption, a participation in the life of the Trinity. So that life of grace flows out into the spiritual powers and the powers of the soul uh, in terms of uh, concupiscence and, and uh, ir the irascible appetites, flows out in ways that faith, open charity, elevating intellect and will, and the infused cardinal virtues flow from that. The interesting thing for Aquinas, it's also somehow elevating uh, a, a, a habitual presence within uh, the irascible and concupiscible. They're not all virtues of the will for Aquinas. Um, yeah. But they, they flow from, I think you would say. Um. Thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering if you could uh, say a little bit more about, uh, well, I'm interested in passage E in uh, was it section four, uh, if you could say a little bit more about um, the role of action with regards to infused virtues. Um, so in this passage, uh, uh, Aquinas is talking about how uh, action contributes to both acquired and infused virtues in different ways. It causes acquired virtue and it disposes us to... Um, to to the to have the infused virtues, it disposes but, to merit them. Yes. To merit, yeah. So that's kind of what I'm. Um, uh, I was wondering you could say a little bit more, specifically with you know the examples of like fasting and stuff like that. There seems to be certain kinds of things. It's you know it, it's a grace that God gives us, but there's also certain things we can do to kind of. Well, yeah. So the economy of merit is right. again, as Augustine says, our merits are your gifts. So uh, even our merits are your gifts. The um, 
In the economy of merit, Aquinas describes it like the way in which growth occurs in a plant. Or the uh, redwoods are really good for this. The re uh, you can see the growth on a redwood branch. It just it just seems to explode out in in one day. The growth, the added part of the the redwood branch, the greenery. Uh, so what he'll say is that a tree can look like it's dead, but it's preparing for growth, and that the economy of merit is like that. Unlike uh, the arts and the acquired virtues, uh, if you dribble a basketball, you're deepening the habitus of dribbling that basketball by every act of dribbling the basketball. But in the economy of merit, you, you're making these acts of love and, of God and neighbor and you're meriting growth, but the growth occurs according to God's providence when that's appropriate for our salvation. And so you, it's only a disposition to grow, but the growth is according to his wisdom uh, and the economy of merit that he himself has established. Like suddenly the greenery growing forth on a, on a pine or a conifer or a redwood. Thank you for a, a wonderful, wonderful talk. I want to return to the case of Mother Teresa or a Mother Teresa-like person. So we can, mm -hmm. and, and the case of the the Notre Dame person, and and present two options. As I as I think I heard you describe the phenomenon or what you think is happening, there is just an absence of acquired prudence that leads to an act that is deficient with respect to the common good. Now, I, I wonder whether we might, whether you might be open to this thought, that, that what we see in this is that infused prudence has failed to recognize that this is a case in which, at the very least, the person possessed of it ought to seek counsel or ought to go about the work of ordering herself or himself to care about the common good in a certain sort of way. So this would be a case where the way we account for it is as a failure actually to exercise infused prudence, not as though infused prudence would of its own accord enable one to do the right act, but it would enable one to undertake the work of either seeking counsel or beginning to develop Acquired yeah. Okay, that's very good. Because what you're asking is, what is the relationship, from my perspective, what's the relationship between acquired prudence and infused prudence? And the, so like the Basil Moreau uh, example, he's in, he's in a, he's, he's not in Notre Dame. It's Soren who's in Notre Dame. He's in uh, a suburb of Le Mans um, uh, called Sainte-Croix. Uh, until they have to sell the property, and then he goes and lives um, in a private, uh, a private uh, home. Anyway, uh, he has he clearly has imperfect what like I think Aquinas would describe as political prudence. But if I understand your question, you're asking me yes, but wouldn't infused prudence have been moving him? to take counsel more than he did. And I would say, I think if reading in other places in Aquinas, I would say, yes, but this would be a case of, of a venial sin because he's not choosing something 
other than God as his end, he's making a mistake with regard to the execution of his love of God. So that these would be, if they're sinful at all, they would be venial with regard to his infused virtues. Uh, but of course, Aquinas never really spells out the relationship on this level between acquired prudence and infused prudence. He just says that not everyone has these other f wider uh, forms of counsel or, or uh, uh, practical wisdom. And we would, I would like him to have said more, but he was already an outlier with regard to underlining the, the, the infused as the primary excellences. And that, I think, you know, I, I don't think we should lose sight of that in all of our different debates, that we, we all want to uh, affirm that Christian virtues are primarily virtues in Christ and animated by charity. And, but yeah, but that, that's a very good question because that gets to the whole part of the way in which these two different realities interact.